In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray together. Father, now all we ask is that you come by your Spirit and work in our hearts and in our minds as the Word of God is preached. We pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your Word this morning. And as we consider the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, May it strike us with fresh glory, fresh awe, what you have done to accomplish salvation for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I was, of course, preparing to preach on this passage, this text, uh, this week, and so I was thinking on Luke 2 and the account of Jesus' birth and how his family uh, had to lay him in a manger for there was no room at the inn, and then that uh, humble scene, the contrast between it and the great scene out in the fields with the shepherds where the angel makes this glorious announcement and then the heavenly hosts come and sing glory to God. And as I was studying the passage this week, uh, two other times during the week, the passage came to my attention in uh, unexpected ways, ways I wasn't prepared for, two really glorious ways in which this passage, particularly verses 8 through 14, scene with the angel and the shepherds and the heavenly hosts that come, uh, came to, to my attention. The first was Tuesday night. Uh, my wife and I, along with a few others from the church, went to see Handel's Messiah performed at uh, Centenary Methodist in downtown. Uh, it was a wonderful evening, a glorious event, and uh, was, was something we very much enjoyed. Right in the middle of Handel's uh, great piece, Handel's Messiah, which is the story of the coming of Jesus into the world, And it does continue on to go to the cross and the resurrection and even the consummation. Uh, But midway through the piece, uh, there is a a famous um, uh, choral piece. Uh, You have a a soprano that first stands up and she sings the text of verses 8 through about 13. And she even takes on the voice of the angel, making this announcement about the birth of Jesus. And it ends with those words, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and singing. 
and Handel worked in this special effect. Ordinarily, if there's a chorus in Handel's Messiah, the choir's singing well before they actually do sing. But in that particular part of Handel's Messiah, uh, the choir suddenly stands up to kind of create this effect of the, uh, the, the heavenly host suddenly appearing. And they sing what is my, my favorite piece in the whole Messiah. They sing the text of the song here, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill to men. And it's, it's just, it really blows you away. It's loud. It's probably the, the loudest portion of, of Handel's Messiah. And uh, I'm not embarrassed to admit that was the one time in the, the performance where I teared up. It really is just glorious. And I encourage you, if you want to look that up online, to listen to that recording. Uh, and so that was wonderful. That was great. And, and as I was preparing to preach this passage, it was pleasant to meditate on it in that particular setting. The, the second time the passage came to my attention this week, unexpectedly, was perhaps even more glorious. It was last night uh, on the couch with my son watching the Charlie Brown Christmas special. If you've ever seen the Charlie Brown Christmas special, you might remember that, that Charlie Brown, who we're told is the Charlie Browniest of all the Charlie Browns, kind of a pessimistic sort of, sort of character, uh, Charlie Brown is distressed because he thinks Christmas is being overrun by commercialism, it's all about giving and getting gifts. It's so materialistic, and there's all this advertising. And in this particular episode, he's responsible to put on the Christmas play, and the kids aren't really cooperating. And he's trying to get them to see something more about Christmas that they don't really understand or appreciate, and they're just caught up in materialism and, and commercialism. And Charlie Brown gives out this sort of exasperated shout toward the end of the episode. He, he says, is there anyone out there who knows what Christmas is all about. And the music sort of stops, it gets quiet. And uh, Linus, he's the character with the blanket, Lucy's brother. Uh, Linus says, Charlie Brown, I could tell you what Christmas is all about. And he steps to the middle of the stage and the lights come down, the light shines on him. And he actually recites Luke 2, 8 through 14 from memory. And then he turns to Charlie Brown and he says, Charlie Brown, that's what Christmas is all about. That was actually more striking to me because it was on national television in prime time. It may be the most clear gospel presentation that will be on national TV in prime time. But those were two examples of this passage coming to my attention spontaneously this week, and they're both wonderful. But it illustrates that, that this account of the angels, one angel in particular, coming and making this announcement to the shepherds, and then the song that is sung at the end of this passage, just very much in our minds this time of year. It probably is the most well-known, quote-unquote, Christmas passage. And many people, even uh, in, in our culture, who wouldn't profess to be Christians, are aware of this passage. So I wanted to turn our attention to this passage this morning, as this is the last Sunday before we celebrate uh, Christmas this Wednesday. And um, I want us to understand what it is the angels are talking about here and maybe see some things that maybe we've not appreciated in the past. So the focus this morning will be on verses 8 through 14, particularly verses 10 and 11, and this announcement from the angel. There's two questions I'd like to ask this morning to frame our time. You could consider these two main headings. The first question is this, what is it that's announced by the angel? What is announced? And we have this clearly for us in verse 10. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news 
of great joy that will be for all the people. Just break it up phrase by phrase, line by line. He says, fear not. Now, why would the angel have to say that? Why would these shepherds there watching their sheep by night, why would they be afraid? Why does he have to tell them, do not be afraid, fear not? Well, if you look up just a little bit in verse 8, we read, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch of the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The text doesn't say precisely why they were afraid. I want to suggest three reasons why they might have been afraid. Uh, The first is because the glory of the Lord was there. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and the glory of the Lord is so overwhelming and so awesome that people can feel afraid in its presence. Other references to the glory of the Lord throughout the Bible uh, often uh, uh, bring about in people this experience of fear, this experience of being afraid in the presence of such glory. A second possible reason is because the angel of the Lord was there and he was stronger than them. Uh, There's a sort of uh, raw power to this demonstration. This angelic being is standing before them and there's the glory of the Lord that encompasses him in some way and these men are afraid. Now, the angel came with no ill will, but maybe you've had this experience of just being in the presence of someone who's so much bigger than you, so much more powerful than you, and and you just sort of feel unsettled and and a little afraid in the presence of such a person. Well, magnify that a thousand times. Here's this glorious angelic being. We don't know what he looked like, but it was glorious. It was magnificent. He was strong. He was powerful. And these shepherds respond with a feeling of fear. The third reason, though, and I just feel certain that this had to be present in the minds and hearts of the shepherds, they were afraid because they knew in their hearts that they were sinners. They knew in their hearts that they were sinners. We know in our heart of hearts that we're sinners. We can do all kinds of things to distract ourselves from that reality, especially around Christmas time in a culture that is so materialistic. We can distract ourselves from the fact that really ought to be staring us in the face, that we are sinners answerable to our Creator God. Well, I suspect in the presence of the angel, with the glory of the Lord shining around him, these men became aware that that there was a gap between the holiness of this demonstration of this scene and the lack of holiness they possessed. They were probably aware that they were sinners. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is in the presence of the glory of the Lord, The first words he says is, uh, woe is unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. When he saw the glory of the Lord, his, his first thought was on his sin in contrast to the glory and holiness and majesty of what he was seeing. Similarly, the apostle John in the apocalyptic vision he sees recorded in Revelation, when he sees the glory of the Lord, he falls down and bows his head into the earth for shame in the presence of such glory. Well, these men are fearful, and so it's necessary that the angels say, don't be afraid, fear not. Those are the first words of the announcement. Then the angel says, secondly, for behold, or or look, or see, I bring you good news of great joy. The verb that's there in the, the Greek text is ouangolitsomai, It's the verb form of the word euangelion, which is the word from which we get gospel. 
Euangelion uh, is the Greek word from which we get our English word evangelism, which is proclaiming the gospel or preaching the gospel. So, so you can literally translate this passage that the angel says, uh, for behold, I proclaim to you the gospel. I preach to you the good news. The angel is evangelizing here. He is bringing the gospel to them. And this is indeed one of the first presentations of the gospel we have in the New Testament. Uh, there's good news that's announced. There's gospel that is proclaimed. So here it is. This is it. The next words the angel says to these sinful shepherds who surely were aware of their sins in the presence of such glory are the words upon which their hope of salvation depend. Here comes the good news, the gospel of great joy. But before we look at what the gospel is, there's that last phrase, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, that will be for all people. It will be for all people. Now, it's at this point that some people get very theological, and they might say, well, yes, but what does all people mean exactly? Yeah, all people means all people. It means the world. It means good news for everybody. Not Jews only, not merely the top 10%, not only the cultural and social elite, not just the fittest, but all people, all nations, all backgrounds, all colors, all places on the socioeconomic grid, all kinds of sinners, all kinds of disappointments and misfits and outcasts, people with baggage and people with scars and people with the blackest sort of things in their record. Uh, people who have been abused and people who have abused others. People with addictions, addictions to alcohol, addictions to pornography, addictions to money, to materialism, to power, to being thought pretty, to being well thought of, to the praise and approbation of men. Uh, people whose test scores qualify them to study at Harvard University and people who are intellectually disabled. This gospel will be for the physically attractive and the physically unattractive, for the same sex attracted and for the opposite sex attracted, to people who grew up in whole and healthy families and people who grew up in broken and dysfunctional families. Good news of great joy that will be for all people, for all people, because all people are sinners and all people need a Savior. Because God is pleased to provide a Savior for the world. Where there was no way, God has made a way for sinners. Because God is pleased to give the gift of faith and repentance to all kinds of people. The Samaritans thus said in John 4 verse 42, We have heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Good news for all people. For self-righteous Pharisees like Nicodemus, and for desperate, obvious sinners like the woman at the well. Good news for Jews and Gentiles. Good news for idol worshipers in northern India, for people caught up in animism in Papua, and for self-assured pagans in Winston-Salem. Good news for all people. So what is announced by the angel? That's the first question. The simple answer is the gospel is announced. The gospel that banishes fear, the good news that brings great joy. 
and the gospel that is for all people, for all kinds of sinners. But that raises a most important question. Uh, What is the gospel? That's the second question I want us to consider. What's announced by the angels? Well, the gospel's announced by the angels. But now a most important question, what is the gospel? The title of this message is the gospel according to the angels, which is the same as the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the rest of the New Testament writers. To sinners here in desperate need of a Savior, the next words I'm going to read in the passage are the most important words you can hear. What is the good news? What is the gospel according to the angels? Verse 10, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I said it's one of the earliest presentations of the gospel in human history. And personally, I think it's one of the best um, concise summaries of the gospel in all the Bible. It's not exhaustive. It doesn't say everything we might want to say, but it's one of the best concise summaries of the gospel. I was talking to Brad Kinnison this week. He's a deacon here, one of our pastoral assistants, and he does some ministry with our, our youth here at Emmanuel. And he was telling me about an exercise that they had done maybe some weeks ago. Uh, he said that um, he had asked the young people, he passed out three by five cards, and he said, do me a favor, just write on the card uh, what you understand the gospel to be. Your answer to the question, what is the gospel, which I think is just a wonderful exercise. We ask that question in most membership interviews as well of those joining the church. And, and, and Brad was encouraging, and he said, he said, you'd be really encouraged. Uh, these, these, these young people really, I think they get the gospel. And almost all the answers were, were exactly right. There were maybe one or two that were dead wrong, but, but they were, uh, for the most part, good and positive answers. The next 15 minutes of this sermon are for that one or two or three young people who got it wrong. And for anyone else here who doesn't have perfect clarity on the gospel, we strive in our Sunday school program and in our classes and in our preaching to make sure every sinner has crystal clear clarity on the gospel message. Because as Paul says in Romans 1.16, it is the power of God unto salvation. You need to know precisely what the gospel is, because it is through the gospel that sinners are saved. And we don't want anyone to leave this place misunderstanding the good news of great joy that the angels proclaim here in this passage. I want each of you young people, anyone visiting, anyone here who is unclear on the message of the gospel, You need to know this message. About a year or so ago, I was able to visit England, and I went to Stradbroke, a small little village in Suffolk County. That's where J.C. Ryle preached uh, before he became the Bishop of Liverpool. J.C. Ryle was a great pastor theologian in the 1800s. And uh, the door of the church was unlocked, so me and Zach and my other brother, we let ourselves in, went inside and walked around the church. And I climbed up into J.C. Ryle's pulpit, this big, august-looking wooden pulpit. And there, where only J.C. Ryle could see, carved into the wood of his pulpit were the words from 1 Corinthians 9, 16, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Sinners need to know this message with perfect clarity. 
And so, God helping me, I hope to explain this message now. Uh, What is the gospel? Let's just go with the words of the angel, phrase by phrase. First, he says, for unto you is born this day. For unto you. Uh, This is for you, in other words. Uh, The language reads that this son is given in birth for you. The purpose is for you. It's for your benefit, if you would realize it. This birth, this coming of the Son of God into the world is for you. God is not out here for His health. Uh, God is not just so lonely that He just needed to have more friends until He sent His Son into the world. No, this, this is for you, for unto you. Uh, you sinners who sit in darkness, you sinners who sit in judgment, you sinners who are in need of a Savior, this child is born. For unto you is born this day. And that's the second phrase, this day. For unto you is born this day, today. It was a day in history. Uh, It was a day at a real time and in a real place. A day just like today. That day had a sunrise and a sunset. It was a day planned in eternity. God had appointed this day. In Galatians 4.4, the apostle says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. There was a sense that a great plan was coming to a place of climax. The fullness of time had come, and on a day in history, the Christ came. For unto you is born this day, and then we read, in the city of David. Kids, this is a real city. You can actually go there today. That's a little over 6,000 miles from here. The city is called Bethlehem. It's the city of David. It's just a few miles from Jerusalem. And we read that in verse 4 of Luke chapter 2. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. A real day, historical day, in a real historical place. And what happened on this day, in this city, for us? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Three important titles that get to the very heart of the gospel itself. Let's consider each one. Unto you is born this day a Savior, a Redeemer, a Deliverer. In Matthew's account of the gospel, uh, we read that the angel visited Joseph And when the angel visited Joseph, chapter 1, verse 21, the angel said to him, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, or Jeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. He will be a redeemer. He will be a deliverer. He will be a savior. Now, to say that Jesus is a savior implies something, doesn't it? There's something implied in that statement. Something that these shepherds surely knew in their hearts and something we know in our hearts. It implies that mankind is actually in need of salvation. It implies that mankind is actually in some sort of danger. The danger, the peril, the threat that we are under is so much greater than most people will tell you. Nowadays, when Christ is presented as a Savior, uh, when that message is, is announced in many churches across the world, 
Uh, you listen to what it is that we're supposed to be saved from, uh, it's, it's a little different than what the church has believed historically. The idea of, of what it is that Jesus saves us from has undergone a great deal of revision over the last 150 years or so. Uh, nowadays, when Christ is presented as a Savior, He's presented as one who can save you from a hard life or a disappointing life. Uh, he can save you from your, your background. He can save you from your past or perhaps from various disorders and dysfunctions. Uh, salvation is often presented. Uh, uh, salvation is that you will uh, have a better, healthier, happier marriage with Christ. You'll have a happier family life with Jesus. You'll have financial peace with Christ. You'll have emotional stability with Christ. You'll have a friend in hard times with Christ. You'll have a cure for your loneliness and for your low self-esteem if you would just take Jesus on. What I'm talking about is sort of like the soft version of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That, that, that Jesus comes to, to kind of give you what you need in this life in order to have a better sort of life. Listen, my friend, you don't need a savior from your low self-esteem. You need a savior from your sins. And you need a savior from the wrath of God. And you need a savior from hell itself. You need a savior from the just punishment that your sins deserve. And for all those who know that they have done nothing in this life to merit the favor of God, but have only merited the just and holy judgment of a perfect and holy God, this gospel comes with good news, and it's good news of great joy, because it means you can save me from my actual problem, not just some sort of symptom of that problem. It's not just that Jesus comes to cure my inner loneliness, it's that He stands between me and the hell that I deserve forever, that He actually can save me from my sins and handle my actual problem, my actual issue that I deserve eternal punishment forever. So the announcement of the angels is that this Jesus is a Savior, that He can address conclusively and decisively our sin problem. He can make us right with God by His blood. He can forgive us our sins and put them as far as the east is from the west. He could cleanse us from every stain of sin. He could actually be a Savior for us. And for those who know that they're sinners, those who know that they're in need of a Savior, that is the greatest news, producing the greatest joy. Secondly, we read that Jesus is the Christ. For unto you is born this day in the city of, the, of David a Savior who is Christ. And Christ means the anointed one. It's a near synonym to the Messiah. The Christ is God's ambassador. He's the great deliverer, the redeemer, uh, the liberator, the one who was longed for and, and expected and anticipated in the Old Testament. God's anointed one, God's Christ, God's Messiah. But God had made the announcement in ages past that He would send a mediator. He would send the Messiah, the Christ, who would represent God and would achieve redemption for His people. And he would conclusively address the sin problem and bring about redemption and salvation for sinners. And this Christ would one day rule and reign over all and establish peace and justice and truth throughout the world. This promise was expressed in various ways. It was first expressed in the garden after Adam and Eve had fallen in sin. There in Genesis 3.15, 
Uh, We read that uh, God is going to put enmity between the woman and between the serpent and the woman's offspring and her offspring, and that there's going to come this one, uh, this seed, this child of the woman who will decisively crush the serpent's head. It's envisioned this great conflict between good and evil, and the promise God makes is that there's coming this Savior, Redeemer, Christ, who would crush the head of the serpent. The promise was made to Abraham uh, that from his line, God would bring about a deliverer, one who would bring about blessing to all the nations. There would come this, this Messiah, this Christ, and He would establish salvation for all the peoples, not just the Jews. Uh, Not just those who came physically from the line of Abraham, but indeed men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The promise was made to David, uh, King David, a thousand years before the events of Luke 2, that he would one day have a son coming from his line, a, a, a king who's greater than David, who would reign on his father's throne forever. He would establish righteousness and salvation and peace and joy and truth throughout the world. And He would reign forever and ever as King of kings and Lord of lords. The promise was made through the prophets again and again that there was coming a Messiah, there was coming a Christ, and He would in some way suffer as a sacrificial lamb in the place of sinners, that He would die for His people, and that He would bring about actual forgiveness for them, eternal forgiveness for them, forgiveness that the Old Testament signs and rituals and system could not conclusively achieve. One day there was going to come this Messiah, this Christ, and He would do it. He would save His people from their sins. So Jesus is the Savior, actually save us from our sins and the just punishment our sins deserve. He is the Christ, He is the Messiah, God's anointed, who would bring about deliverance for God's people. And thirdly and finally, we read that He is the Lord There is born unto you a Savior, who is Christ, the Lord. Greek word there is kurios, and that word can be used generically to mean like like sir or lord, master. Um, You could actually refer to another person as a kurios, as a lord, as as a sir or something like that. Almost every time it's used with reference to Jesus, it means something so much more than that. Uh, The proper meaning of the Old Testament A New Testament usage is something like this. To be the Lord is to be the one who is absolutely sovereign over all. To say that Jesus is Lord is to acknowledge that He is ruler over all, and that to Him all mankind is answerable. To Him is owed allegiance, devotion, obedience, and worship. For someone to say that Jesus is Lord is to acknowledge a personal commitment to Him as one's own captain, one's own master teacher, one's own leader, and even one's own God. So Thomas says in John 20 when he sees the risen Lord, he says, my Lord and my God. It is to give to Jesus that title that is to be ascribed to Him and Him alone, the one and only absolute sovereign over all. That's why Philippians 2, 9-11 reads, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
There is a title that is owed to Jesus and to Jesus alone. That title is Lord. And all those who follow Jesus, who worship Jesus, who give themselves to Jesus, recognize Him as the Lord. And indeed, there's coming a day when all will stand in His presence and every knee will bow to Him. Every knee will bow. Whether you've acknowledged Jesus as your Lord in life or not, every knee will bow. I mean, think about this. After our, our bodies have been in the ground perhaps for a thousand years, one day we will all rise and, 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 and your knee will bow to Jesus Christ the Lord. And when His name is said spontaneously, the word Lord will erupt out of your mouth as you see His glory revealed. Now for those who have acknowledged Jesus Christ as their Lord in this life, how wonderful that's going to be. Can you think about that? To see the glory of the Son of God and to almost by compulsion of the moment, the power of the glory that's before you, to bow the knee. And then to hear trumpeted the name of Jesus and then to pronounce the word Lord with everything in your being. I don't know that there could be any greater experience. For those who have not acknowledged Jesus as Lord in life, you will acknowledge Jesus as Lord in death and in the life to come. And for all those who did not acknowledge Jesus as the Lord, they will do so on that day and in that moment, and it will be the most horrifying experience. Because you will know that the Lord that you did not acknowledge, that you did not worship, that you did not call upon, the Lord whose name you blaspheme by your speech and by your thoughts and by your life, is now standing before you to judge the world. Your knee will bow, and you will pronounce the word Lord, assign it to Him and to Him alone. But you will know that all that awaits you is judgment. But every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is Lord of all, the one who is absolutely sovereign, the one to whom we all owe our allegiance, and the one to whom every knee will bow. Before leaving this point, I, I have to say this. There have been groups uh, in so-called Christian circles who have peddled the idea that you can in some sense have Jesus as a Savior and not have Him as Lord, the one to whom you owe obedience or something like that. The idea is that um, you can have Jesus as Savior, but to, to sort of give Him your life, to, to obey Him completely, to submit to His laws and to His rules and to follow Him in that way, well, that is maybe something that only the exceptionally mature actually pursue, but not necessarily for most Christians. It's an idea totally foreign and alien to the Bible. There is no man, no woman who could have Jesus as Savior and not have Him as Lord. You often hear this, that, that well, I think when I was, was eight, I accepted Jesus as my Savior, but it wasn't until I was probably in my late 20s that I accepted Him as my Lord. Okay, you, you did not accept Jesus at all until you were in your late 20s. And, and any children here, maybe, maybe you're thinking along these lines that, well, I, I've asked Jesus to forgive me my sins, so I'm, I'm good with Jesus, but I really don't want to start following Him and obeying Him until later on. That's all wrong. 
The, The gospel is that Jesus is Savior, He is the Christ, and He is Lord. And, 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 and that's the message that saves if we embrace Him for who He actually is, as the Savior, as the Christ, and as the Lord of our lives to whom we owe obedience, the one wh- whom we follow. And, and this is the message the angels are pronouncing. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And we don't have the right to, to start chopping that up and, and, okay, well, I'll take Him as Savior. I'll take him as Christ. I'm not really sure where I am with him about Lord. You must have him as Savior and Lord or you won't have him at all. We don't get to shuffle up the deck and choose which cards we want. We don't get to cut things out of the gospel message. You must have Christ as Lord of your life, the one whom you follow, the one whom you worship, the one whom you adore, the one to whom you give yourself as a living sacrifice, the one whom you follow and obey. And that, too, is good news, that Jesus is not just giving us a get-out-of-jail-free card or tickets to get out of hell or something like that, but that He actually comes to us and shepherds us and leads us and guides us and befriends us and benevolently reigns over us. That's good news that Jesus is Lord. We don't want to accept Him as anything less than that. If you are to come to Jesus as all, you get to come to Him as one who can save you from your sins, and one who can guide you in the path of righteousness and be Lord of your life, and one who will lead you throughout all the storms of this world. And all those who follow Jesus, who embrace Jesus, embrace Him as such. He is the Savior, Christ the Lord. This is the gospel according to the angels, that God by His own initiative, because of His love for the world, has sent forth His own Son to be born in human flesh in the city of David. And that Son is to be the Savior of mankind. He is the Christ, the longed-for anticipated One who would deliver His people from their sins by His own shed blood. He will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And for all those who embrace Him as a Savior for their sins and Lord of their lives, who believe on Him in repentance and faith, He will grant everlasting life. This is what the angels announce, that a Savior has come, and He is Christ the Lord. I can't close without mentioning, at least, verse 14 again, when, when the angel makes this announcement it's, it's almost like um, it elicits this almost spontaneous sort of eruption of praise from the heavenly host, and they appear there suddenly, and they sing, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. I wonder what it would have been like to be there, to be these shepherds in the presence of, of all of that. I said a moment ago, well, at the start of the sermon anyway, now several moments ago, uh, how moved I was at the singing of this song by the Winston-Salem Symphony over at Centenary Methodist on, on Tuesday night. It really was glorious. But I thought later, going back through these verses, there was maybe like 30 members of that choir that stood up and sang that song. Here you had the multitude of the heavenly hosts. Maybe you've had this experience, you have a song that you love so much, and then you hear a really bad cover of it. 
like you might hear uh, Nat King Cole singing chestnuts roasting on an open fire, and then you hear like Taylor Swift sing it or something like that. <laughs> Just ruins it. This was at best, what we saw Tuesday night, it was at best a bad cover. And what, what glory must have accompanied this scene. But what makes it so glorious is not just the musical accompaniment or the great volume of the voices of the heavenly host. It's the content of the song. That the coming of the Son of God into the world will have an effect in heaven and on earth. It will mean glory to God in the highest and on earth peace with whom God is well pleased. All oppression shall cease. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom God is well pleased. Now, now, maybe you've seen this, maybe you've not. You know this, right? The universe exists. We exist. We take our next breath. Everything in the universe exists for the glory of God. Everything in the world exists for the glory of God. Everything in the world doesn't actually exist for our happiness. The world exists for God. And all His creatures and all the events of history exist to, to redound to the glory and worship and praise of God. That's what this is all about. But what this hymn seems to indicate is that, at least in this instance, what is bringing glory to God is that He's not only the creator of the world, and the one who orchestrated the universe and has sovereignly directed the events of history. The reason the heavenly host and the angels glorify God is because He is pleased to save sinners. These events, the coming of the Son who is born unto you, the benefits that accrue to you sinners are bringing glory to God, which means it's not just that the birth of Jesus is, 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 is producing these two different effects, one in heaven and one on earth, but actually in some mysterious and wonderful way, they're connected, that God is actually glorified. God is pleased. God has bound up His own glory, the magnification of His own glory in our salvation, that God actually receives praise and worship in the saving of sinners. And this is the good news, that the God who created all, uh, uh, the God before whom we have behaved is nothing but rebels and merited only eternal punishment at His hand. He is well pleased. He is glorified to undertake everything needed for our salvation. He calls on us to acknowledge His Son as the Savior as Christ the Lord, to believe on Him, to put our trust in Him, to turn away from sins and follow Him as the Lord of our lives. That's His gospel, and, and, and the song of the angels indicates that our salvation will actually be the cause of glory to God. The coming of the Lord Jesus into the world will establish peace on earth, and that very redemption, that very peace will be the cause of the heavenly host and redeemed sinners throughout the ages, worshiping God for all eternity. That's good news. That's gospel. Let's pray together.